great to be here um, once again and uh, look forward to maybe in the days ahead having some of you in a class that I might happen to teach, although as an adjunct professor they don't schedule me to teach. Uh, it's just a good title. So. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. A number of years ago, my wife and I, we, we, uh, we like to do things on horseback. My wife's a, a, a trainer of horses, so she grew up on horseback. Uh, the entirety of her life uh, rode to school until her grade eight year on horseback, not because it was a neat thing to do, but because they had to. They didn't own an automobile. And uh, she lived in a, a rural setting where the school was some miles away. And since that uh, early childhood to now, uh, horses have been a part of our lives. Uh, Bev and I will hit our 42nd year of marriage, October 14th, next month. And uh, yeah, thanks. I'll let her know the applause was for her. Um, and rightly so. Uh, so. So horses have been a part of our life all of this time. And, and uh, several years ago, we, we have tried um, to continue our times of vacation on horseback in the mountains or in what we would call the bush, packing up a bit of food, a bit of gear, and, and, and a tent and some uh, equipment and heading to the woods. Uh, and we've done that quite consistently. Well, a few years ago, we were, we were on our way. We were in the foothills of the Rockies. And we were on our way on our first day uh, out into the bush to spend some time together. Uh, and, and we'd gone on a, a trail that we had not been on before, so it was all new to us. And, and as we went along uh, through the morning, as it got toward mid-morning, we found ourselves in this light muck. So it was just sort of the boggy muck that you will often find in a forest. And we didn't think much about it. So we continued on our way. And the trail was a game trail. Uh, you could see that animals had been walking along the trail back and forth for, for many, many years. It had been well-worn. Um, but as we went, the muck was now a little more than just a hoof height. It was now up to the, what they call the fetlocks. So it's about that high on the horse. And so the mud is this deep. Uh, well, we didn't think much of that. Horses are, are, are pretty good bulldozers, and they would move through that pretty well. And we kept going. Uh, not long after, the mud got a little deeper. And of course, as we went along it deeper and deeper until we were up to their knees in mud. Now horses will still manage that quite well with a load on and it doesn't hurt them, it's not onerous. But we realized that it had the appearance that every step of the way from there on in it was gonna get worse and worse and worse. And so, discretion being the better part of valor, we decided to back up, turn around, and head back down that trail to where we had started from to see if perchance we might find some better way to get where we thought we wanted to go. Well, theology in the Christian church from my perspective, and all of my training has been in Western theological settings and institutions and universities, has somewhat that sort of a problem that it's been dealing with uh, down through the years. It, it, it has continued to sort of plot ahead the muck was initially about like that, and then it got a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. Uh, but without exercising great discretion, it has continued to try and plod forward in, in the muck. And, and I want to try and maybe open that up a little bit this morning. Now, this is a trial run on this message. 
uh, on this uh, concept. So if you don't like it, uh, fill out the card at the door at the back uh, and let me know so that I can, I can gather up all of the opinions and, and adjust it accordingly. Now, I want to read another passage. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, at the beginning of the narrative, there's, this, there's these trees, this forest, this garden. It's an interesting place. We have a brief description of it, and we're left to sort of fill in the blanks with our imagination. What was this really like in this narrative that, that the Genesis text provides for us? What was this really like? Uh, how did it really uh, feel and experience? What kinds of trees were there? And so over the years, I've sort of taken it upon myself to, to look for trees everywhere and, and say, well, was that one in the garden? Was that one in the garden? And, and what purpose did it serve? And of course, in the biblical narrative, it's filled with different kinds of trees that play some part in the, in the narrative. The, the oaks of Mamre, uh, the cedars of Lebanon, uh, and the terebinths. And so trees have been come, kind of fascinating to me. And so as I've been going back and forth through the biblical narrative, I found myself in Genesis 1 and 2 fixated on trees. Now, the church has done that too. It's, it's fixated, really, really fixated on trees. Unfortunately, down through the ages, the Christian church is fixated on only one of the trees in the garden. Anybody guess which tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in fact, it's the second tree named in the narrative. The first tree named is the tree of life. The second tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, why is it, do you suppose, that we have become so fixated on the one and essentially ignored the other? So let me ask you a question. How many of you, and answer honestly, please. Theologians, sit down. Uh, how many of you have ever heard your pastor or the pastor from any church you've ever attended choose and preach from as the focal text, a sermon on the tree of life out of Genesis chapters 1 and 2? How many of you? Please put your hands up. One brave soul, two brave souls, three, maybe four, five, six. I think you guys are exaggerating over there. The three of you together, just is suspect, right? So, so as you can see, uh, and, and if we were to do this and repeat this ex little experiment, albeit it's not uh, empirical, you would find that for the most part, we have never heard anybody preach a text, uh, preach from this text a sermon on the nature of the tree of life. And yet, it's the first tree named, it's central in the garden, central in the narrative, it's, it's, it's this right there kind of tree. So, what might it look like to engage in a theological exercise as followers of Jesus from a different starting point, extricating ourselves from the constant fight in the muck to go back and set out again with a different course in mind? I think it means focusing on that first tree. Because you see, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we pick up in Genesis 3, talks about the muck. It talks about the mire of sin, and quite frankly, the Christian church is really good at scraping the sin barrel and seeing what lies at the bottom of it. And in fact, I don't know as we've gotten there yet. And, and as a consequence, we just keep plodding forward in this muck, and we don't have the ability to back up and ask ourselves a serious question. What was the plan, the thought, the idea, the intent of God in the beginning? 
And as a consequence, what are these trees in the narrative at the end of the story all about? See, the tree is there at the beginning of the narrative, and it's there again at the end of the narrative. This time it's bifurcated. This time there's one on each side of the river of life. This time it is clear that it's bearing fruit, 12 crops, of 12 different kinds of fruit. And it's clear that the leaves are for the healing of the nations. See, so it's at the beginning of the narrative, and it's at the end of the narrative. But we've been so fixated on the one that does not occur at the end of the narrative. Notice it says there will be nothing accursed there anymore. So that tree is not there anymore, it would seem. Or at least the consequence of having eaten of that tree won't be there. Why do we have such a fixation on that? Why is it that we cannot connect those two dots in our understanding of God's plan and God's intent? What would it mean to come full circle? So for many years now, I've been reflecting on the work of the great arborist, the one who created the magnificent forests, forests that have existed within the creation from the beginning. But more than simply a matter of cataloging them in my mind, however, I've been observing their comings and goings within creation and in the narrative of Scripture and their importance. And I've noted a couple of them. I've been drawn increasingly to consider several particular trees in God's great forests in particular. They're of an historical, present tense, and future concern to us. As the narrative of Genesis makes clear, but about which we do not hear overmuch, there are these two trees in Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, about which we have been told a great deal on our education in Christian faith and life, and the tree of life, about which we hear almost nothing. So I'm writing on this. I'm, I've been busy working at it for a bunch of years, and maybe before I die I'll publish something on it, but right now it's not very publishable. The first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is, as Christian theology in particular has made us aware, and by the way, the tree of life appears in many uh, cultural narratives around the world. But the Christian uh, understanding of the tree uh, has given us this capacity to understand the difference between choosing rightly in obedience and choosing wrongly in disobedience, what we have translated as sin. Though there's more to it than that, I, I, I think... I think the ideas that we have about sin are really truncated and really very personal. They're very anthropocentric, human-centered. And they do not take into account the consequence of our first parents' willfulness in the, uh, in the degradation, the destruction, as it were, of the harmony, the order, the interconnected nature of the rest of creation. We need a little more robust understanding of the consequence of the consumption and the disobedience. From its choice by our first parents forward, the effects of this second tree have been known and experienced. Its fruit has been eaten with consistency, and it is bitter. The tree of life, on the other hand, clearly a typology for the second person of the Trinity, offers us and the rest of creation the means of ameliorating the effect and full consequence of this second tree. A question, one among many, that comes to mind then is, since Jesus, moving beyond the events of Eden, hangs on the tree, Galatians 3.13, hangs on the tree and is, as we are made aware, cursed, becoming sin for creation's sake, was the tree of life accessible to be eaten from an Eden in the first place? Was Jesus hanging there from the beginning as fruit from which to eat? I now use the word in the taste and see that the Lord is good kind of a sense. Was he there? And the obvious answer, uh, I think, is yes. Uh, he was. Uh, was he there in that first tree? 
Uh, and was Jesus freely available to be partaken of at the outset? So right now, if you've connected the dots, linear fashion, although I use a circle, I think it's better, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm driving at a little bit here. We have this tree in the garden in the narrative of Genesis. We have this tree at the end of the narrative in Revelation. But in the center of the narrative, we have a third tree. We have the tree upon which Jesus has hung, Galatians 3.13. Paul says, cursed be any man or woman who hangeth upon the tree. Jesus takes upon himself the curse. And only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ in all of creation, himself a part of his own creation, could take upon himself that so that the cursed tree becomes the tree of life, which is precisely what happens. So that at the end of the narrative, it can be very much present and apparent. Now, one on each side of that, of that river. So, by implication and extension, this means that our first parents, had they partaken of the tree of life, of Jesus first, the appropriate understanding of the capacity to know good and evil would have been conferred, I think. And they would have refrained, thus moving into eternal life without the blemish of sinfulness. Makes sense. Seems pretty clear. There's an order that, if it had been followed, seems to imply there would have been different outcomes. Jesus would still have been the one who had lived fully and perfectly before us, but in a different way, there in the center of the garden, as the tree of life, from whom we would partake, as he now is evident in the end of the narrative in Revelation 22. We would partake not as a sacrifice of human blood and life, but as a delicious food which would have sustained life. Had our first parents partaken of Jesus, there would have been no necessity of killing to cover or nourish. Jesus would have been both moral and visible covering and sustenance for life in eternity simply by our consuming his essence. I mean, isn't that what the communion meal is significantly in part at least about? It's about proclaiming the Lord's death, the death that in fact becomes life for all of creation. It's not simply... Uh, about a commemorative meal so that we think back to that uh, first, last supper. But rather, it is about proclaiming the Lord's death. For what purpose? It's the proclamation of the gospel that death has become life. Early in the garden, late in the narrative, and here in the center of the narrative. Hanging on the tree was a curse, one eagerly embraced by Jesus, for he knew its history. But let me suggest this was less about penal substitution and was instead the only means of restoration of our appropriate and only eternal sustenance for eternity. We've gotten so fixated on our theologies of crucifixion that we've forgotten, I think, the bigger and the more weightier issues about it, that indeed he became the tree of life, which connects the tree in the first part of the narrative with the tree in the last. I take note that the curse of Genesis 3, under which creation fell, is lifted in, through, and by Jesus, who in mathematical fashion takes one negative integer, the original curse, multiplies it by the other, the curse that hanging on the tree had become, and thus turns the two negatives to a positive, whereby the first tree in the center of the garden from which we might have eaten, but which we were forbidden to eat from, 
Our first parents are cast out. Angels, swords, fire. You're not going there. It would be inappropriate now that they've tasted of the knowledge of good and evil for them to eat of the tree of life and live forever with that. And sin would be eternal. It's inappropriate. Cut off. So this guarded by angels with flaming sword becomes again the tree of life from which we are able now in Jesus in the end to partake. It's noteworthy that the elements of communion, as I mentioned, had their origin in the use of meat and wine, changing to bread and wine in the Passover meal, needful to consume so that death might pass over us. And it's secondly consumed in the present first and foremost so that we might acknowledge his life, but secondarily so that we might continue to proclaim the death which is the seed of the tree falling into the ground and bringing forth that abundant life that we see at the end of the narrative. And this allows us to know the way, truth, and life. It is then the knowledge of good, the shunning of evil. It is the tree of life and is itself our full sustenance. It's the way we're nourished into eternity. Anyway, that's the short form of the thinking I've been doing about this. I've not been happy at all with the Western models with which I have been familiar And yet some of the thinking about alternative expressions of the atonement require a diminishment of the nature of the Trinity, and in particular the person, work, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which, in my read of it, is so central to what Scripture and my own spiritual journey as a follower of the Jesus way have taught me. And so we need to find, I think, some new ways to explore what it is that Jesus has done that will connect the beginning and the end full circle. Because if you look through the narrative of Scripture, God loves cycles. From the creation and its cleansing in the narrative of the flood, we reemerge with the full flora and fauna of creation once again. And the covenant of God is established with the entirety of creation once again, a full circle. If you look at the destruction narratives as we talk about it of heaven and earth and their restoration, It's about cleansing and purification, and it's about bringing full circle once again and restoring the original plan, thought, idea, intent of God, which is Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 within that narrative. It brings us full circle. Yet the focal points for atonement theory, irrespective of whether moral influence, moral satisfaction, ransom theory, including penal substitution, and its various permutations leave us with huge problems encountered in historic and contemporary society in dealing with sin because we personalize it so very much and we create gradations, cardinal, venial, mortal. This one will send you to hell, but that one won't. This one, if persisted in, is anathema, but this one, keep going, it's okay, we'll overlook it. Because our conceptions of sin have simple moral equations attached to them. Instead of understanding the fullness of the narrative of God that is about bringing back into existence his plan, his intent, his thought, his idea, full circle, full cycle. If, however, we see that our creator has done in the wider and more substantive terms of restoration, this process of restoration bringing us full circle, then we must ask, restored to what, from what, and by what? And that's where cycle view, I think, aids us tremendously and linear understandings of the collapse and restoration uh, pale and actually, I think, fail miserably in describing where we're at 
Uh, and as a consequence, we keep mushing, mushing and mushing and mushing into the mud. Uh, and we're mired down, and we just haven't got the sense to back out, head back to where we began, where the trail was clear, and it's clearly discernible, and set out again. That's my thinking. And we're not using the PowerPoint. <laughs> Blessings. <laughs>